Hello, and welcome to the Growth Mindset Podcast, your weekly dose of inspiration and exploration. Join me, your host, Sam Harris, as I discover how mindset can help you do incredible things through my conversations with the world's most interesting people, from tech billionaires to leading scientists, best-selling authors to notorious hackers. The goal is to increase our collective wisdom and attitudes to make us all happier and healthier, wiser and wealthier. Who doesn't want that? On the podcast today, we have Pete Rowe of Deep Branch Bio. Now, this is a really cool company. They essentially take carbon and from waste emissions from like plants and cement factories and things, and they turn it into usable protein for feeding animals and stuff. And that's pretty amazing because basically you don't need so much land for growing things and you don't have so much carbon emissions, which is like some of the major huge problems that we're trying to solve at the moment in the planet. So yeah, really cool company. And Pete is a really cool guy, really cool guy doing some interesting stuff. So I was very pleased to have him on the podcast to unpack what they're up to, how they're doing it, and talk about life and things. So I hope you enjoy the conversation and you learn a bit more about stuff and some some of the reasons that we have to be positive and hopeful that maybe people do actually solve all these problems. Um, So yes, get excited and enjoy the podcast. So our tagline at Deep Branch is that we convert, well, we transform the polluters of today into the producers of tomorrow. So what we mean by that is we can take carbon dioxide emissions directly from their source, so industrial waste gas, and we can convert that into single cell protein. So this protein is nutritious, it's sustainable, and it can be used in animal feed, aquaculture feed, or even it has potential as a human food. And the real benefit of this is that it's far more sustainable than conventional protein sources. So you're talking about fish meal or soy, which both have huge environmental impacts on the world. And by coupling two problems and coming up with one solution, we feel we can really add a lot of value. And of course, resource limited production of these things mean that their price is going up. There's incentive for CO2 emitters to sort of pay a lot of money to reduce their output because they're getting taxed. So on both ends of the business, there are people that are interested. And of course, it's doing a lot of good. So yeah, that's essentially what we do in a nutshell. Oh yeah, that sounds amazing. Sounds kind of too good to be true in some ways. Yeah, because it sounds kind of a lot like carbon capture storage, apart from you're turning it into protein. Can you explain a bit more how you're doing that as in the conversion? Sure, sure, yeah. So, I mean, the underlying technology that we use is a process called gas fermentation. So what we do with this is we use a bacteria that's able to utilize carbon dioxide as a carbon source. Um, So if you think about a normal fermentation process, let's say if you were making wine, you'd have microbes in there that will be capable of utilizing the sugar in the grapes for carbon and energy. And by doing so, they're able to grow, multiply, and a byproduct of their growth is that they produce ethanol, which is obviously the alcohol that we have in the wine. With the microbes that we use, instead of sugar, they're actually able to do this fermentation process using carbon dioxide for carbon and hydrogen as an energy source. So they grow and by virtue of growing, they create a lot of proteins. And we simply just extract those proteins at the end of it. And all the carbon that's come in is coming out as protein. Nice. That's a pretty neat solution. Have the idea from like seeing the research that this is what happened and realizing you could turn it into a business? Or did you actively think, hey, I think we could somehow change the way these cells are acting to be like a practical solution for the problem of waste gas? Yeah. So, I mean, 
I should say that the whole team has got about, well, a combined 14, 15 years experience in the field of gas fermentation. So it's not something that's entirely new to us. We all met whilst doing our PhDs on this topic. Um, so Bart and I were actually part of a big collaborative project with Lanzatech, who are a, well, they were a New Zealand-based company. They've since moved to Chicago and they work a lot with steel mills so they can convert steel mill off-gas into uh, biofuels. So they have a partnership with Virgin Atlantic and they provide some of their biofuel for their transatlantic flights. So, and there's been a lot of interest in this space for a while, sort of waste gas to platform chemicals or even fine chemicals. But having had some exposure to the world of agriculture and being quite aware of the growing trends in alternative protein sources. So, you know, if you look at the growth of insect meal as a potential feed for aquaculture, I mean, it's already being used in the poultry sector. But when looking into that, I saw that there are quite a few problems with regards to scalability of the technology. So you've got to be able to sort of handle all these insects at huge scale, but also feedstock. So if you think about insect protein, they've got to get their protein from somewhere. They're not autotrophic like the organisms that we use or, or like with uh, plants. You need to, they're really good at converting protein into protein, but they still need that protein in the first place. So a lot of people say, yeah, well, you can get that from food waste. But of course, there are lots of issues there inherent with putting through pathogens, perhaps, or even just getting a nice homogenous feedstock consistently that will work at scale. Whereas ours, we have, although it's coming from an industrial process, it's a relatively clean feedstock that we can use. And in terms of the scale, it's massive. So that's one thing we noted straight away that if we used our technology at just one sort of cement factory in the UK, we'd be able to produce almost half the feed requirements for quite a large feed producer, which, I mean, just to give you something in terms of scale, if you were to have a conventional cement manufacturing facility in the UK, it would produce about 700,000 tonnes of CO2 per year. So it's obviously a huge amount, and that's just one. But we can convert that into about just under 500,000 tonnes of animal feed if we were to use our technology at full scale, which I can see by your face, that's uh, you know, it's a hell of a lot of protein. So that scalability issue isn't really there. And of course, when you're operating at that scale, you also get a lot of benefit. The other reason why we thought protein was a really good option to go for rather than platform chemicals is it doesn't have the same level of competition with its conventional counterparts. So if you think about if you're making a biofuel, you're always price sensitive to what's going on in the oil sector. You saw this a lot with sort of the state subsidized bioethanol production in in the US. That's only really economically viable if you have to prop it up because it's always going to be sensitive to the oil prices. Whereas here we're talking about a product whereby the demand is increasing. You have, you know, by 2050, there'll be almost 10 billion people in the world. So we need to produce more food than we're currently doing so, but we're having to do so in a far more sustainable manner and we're already resource limited. So we need to get this new protein from somewhere. Why not couple it to emissions? So that's kind of the angle that we came in from. And of course, we did a lot of customer discovery as well. So before we even went into the lab and started exploring this properly, we talked to a lot of people from industries that emit a lot of carbon and a lot of people that are involved in the sort of agriculture and aquaculture sectors to see whether there'd be an interest in our technology and our product. And yeah, the answer was overwhelmingly yes. So for instance, fish feed manufacturers, when we were speaking to them, just in our ideation phase, we were saying, would you be interested in a product like this? And they were saying, can you ship us a sample tomorrow? So we noticed straight away that there's a real demand there. And I think that's 
really reflected in how fast we've managed to gain traction since we've started our development work. Um, so we've actually got an agreement with a UK-based cement manufacturer. So they're paying us to come on site and test our technology with them just to confirm that the specific flue gas that they have works with our bioreactor setup and that it can still make a protein. And from there on, it's just a question of scaling. Yeah, wow. That's really cool. Yeah, so it sounds like you've nailed a really awesome solution for a lot of problems. And it's quite interesting the way you've, yeah, found a way to solve it commercially that you can be selling it as food instead of like ccs has a lot of issues with what you're going to do with it once you've captured the carbon and trying to store it's a lot of fat and costs more money Um, yeah exactly precisely (laughs) super neat so in the business plan have you like planned for it to kind of like take over every single concrete factory and every other kind of industrial process in the long run or what's the kind of end goal in terms of scale for the company yeah so i mean some aspects of what we do require a certain amount of scale. So in order for our process to be economically viable, we need to be handling enough carbon dioxide in any given day. So this really is tied down to how much hydrogen we can put into the process. So like I said before, we need the carbon dioxide as a carbon source and the hydrogen as an energy source. And one of the key things that's been able to make this technology a reality is the fact that both the price of renewable electricity and renewable hydrogen production have come down. So production of hydrogen is always very energy intensive. But if you do it at a big enough scale, so you're talking there like five megawatts, then the price of production comes down significantly. And this is something that's only happened in the last five years. But we need to be having at least sort of 10% of that 700,000 figure that I gave you in order for our process to be economically viable. So that's the sort of scale that we're operating at. So we're looking to roll out those modules on site within the next three years or so. And then from there, it's a question of, yeah, expanding beyond that. Capital expenditure is going to be high, but in terms of chemical engineering, you always look to have a period of probably five to 10 years to get a return on investment. And we're quite comfortably below that. But it's still, you know, you're talking hundreds of millions to get these things rolling. So I wouldn't say we're going to take overnight, but the plan is to obviously to keep on rolling. But beyond that, we're also looking to expand our product lines. So at the moment, it's just protein. But like I said before, there's a wealth of other things that you can generate from this process. We start with protein because in some ways, you're not asking too much of your microbial chassis. So one thing that we encountered through our experience with synthetic biology is that although it's relatively easy in theory to look at a metabolic pathway and say, hey, we can delete this gene or we can assert this gene and it will make a new product. The problem is often when that product gets made, it's in picomolar concentrations. So it would be extremely hard to make money when you're making such a small volume of something unless it's extremely valuable. Whereas the thing about protein is producing high volumes in the cell and we've got a few clever ways that we can improve that process as well but you're not really putting too much metabolic burden on the cell and we have a few different products in the pipeline that we think are also nice in that regard but i mean maybe i should go into a bit more detail about where this sort of the basic underlying science comes from yes please (laughs) you keep on answering like my next questions for me it's it's quite nice (laughs) pretty relaxing for me (laughs) so i mean the way i always try and tell this story is that you know if you were to imagine a world with very little free oxygen no ozone layer and so the intensity of uv light that would make you know sort of terrestrial living almost impossible and a lot of people will say oh that's an apocalyptic prediction of where we're going to be in 50 years time if we don't use your technology but in fact it's basically a picture of the earth four billion years ago 
ago. And at this point, if you were to go down into the bottom of the oceans, you'd find hydrothermal vents. And this is where a lot of people think that life actually began. So the kind of metabolic pathways that our organisms use are amongst the oldest in the world. So they evolved to harness the energy from the hydrogen gradients that are associated with these geothermal vents. And of course, there's carbon dioxide down there as well. So instead of using sugars as feedstocks, as we would conventionally think of any microbe doing now, the earliest microbes actually used sort of this hydrogen gradient and CO2 or carbon monoxide as, as carbon sources and were able to grow. And this is actually thought to be linked to one of the photosynthetic pathways as well. So if you look at photosystem two, it's actually got a lot shared in common with how these microbes are able to utilize single carbon gases and hydrogen to grow. So I think it might not even be too much of a stretch to say that this was a precursor to photosynthesis. And if you think about how we make protein conventionally from soy, you have sun providing the energy for soy plants to photosynthesize. By doing so, they're able to produce soybeans. But if you think about the percentage of the biomass of the crop that we're actually using to go into any end products, it's quite small. You know, you're talking about a few beans and quite a lot of stalk and, and leaves. And of course, selective breeding has meant that we can, you know, select for traits that mean there's a higher bean to rest of plant ratio. But the nice thing about the microbes we use is that it's it's all protein, basically. So there's very little wastage. You know, nature's very good being efficient, but soybeans didn't evolve just to make protein from sunlight, mm. you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a whole multitude of different things that any complex organism like that has to try and navigate its way through in terms of evolution. Whereas a simple single celled organism, all you have to do is grow, you know, multiply fast and get better at utilizing any feedstock that you can get your hands on. So we're not really asking too much of our, of our bugs. Cool. If you take that forward, you know, you have, like I said, the, the green revolution where we saw that we can sort of decrease the stalk length of these crops have more energy going into the products that we want. And, you know, you saw a similar thing with aquaculture. So traditionally, we would have got our fish from trawlers that would go out into the sea and catch wild fish. And then in the 90s, people started cutting on to the fact that perhaps this was a bad idea, that, you know, we could instead have our fish farms offshore and grow the fish there, which in theory is a great idea. But especially the predatory fish, you still have to feed them something. And this something is fish meat. So fish meal is basically... Well, part of it is unwanted things from processing the fish that we eat, but the major component is actually unwanted fish that the trawlers catch in the ocean. So we're talking about things there, small fish, undesirable fish that the consumers don't want to eat. This is actually put into fish meal and then it's used as a feedstock to feed the fish that we have in our aquaculture system. So if you buy something that's grown in an aquaculture farm, it's not necessarily a lot more sustainable than having a wild caught fish because what we're doing there is we're taking away the sort of a lot of the food that the predatory fish in the wild would be eating, which means that their stocks dwindle as well. I mean, just looking from some stats from the FAO that they put out recently, we're 2.5 times over what would be regarded as sustainable with regards to our fishing. And a lot of that is due to fish meal. So that's why a lot of the time when you hear us talk, we're talking about using our protein as a fish meal alternative, because we really see that as being a really big pressing issue. The other reason is that the fish are extremely good at feed conversion. So if you think about a fish, they can, however many kilograms of food you put in is roughly equivalent to the amount of kilograms of meat that you get out, which sounds like it would be, you know, a relatively straightforward equation there. But if you think about 
pigs, you have to feed them six kilograms of feed to get one kilogram of meat. So in terms of if you wanted to eat sort of animal-based products, um, the most sustainable ones to eat as long as they have a good feedstock is aquaculture. Um, and you see this a lot with people growing tilapia from food waste. That's why they're always used in those aquaponics setups, because they're extremely good at doing that. And they're a very efficient way to, to eat animal-based products. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I was involved in an aquaponics product in Bristol where we grew tilapia. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Cool. Yeah. yeah, there was one in, in The Hague um, that I went to that was, that was really interesting. Unfortunately, they shut down. But um, oh, that's a yeah, I think it's, it's interesting that people are doing a lot of work in that space. But in, we've kind of taken the opposite route to those kind of aquaponics type setups. So in terms of simplifying things in order to increase your output. So, you know, beyond the green revolution of the 1950s, people were saying, well, what if we use, I mean, you're seeing a lot of growth at the moment in algae, right? So people are saying algae is the next big food source or, you know, sort of source of supplements that we can get. And people there have essentially said plants are in, in some ways inefficient in the ways that I just described. So why don't we just dispense of the need for roots and grow them in a bioreactor like you would do with algae? But we actually said, well, algae's got a lot of issues with, you know, sort of, sort of forming biofilms in the glass, having enough light penetrating inside the bioreactor. So why not just dispense with photosynthesis altogether rather than using photosynthesis to split water into hydrogen, we can just generate our own hydrogen synthetically. So we can feed that into the fermentation process, couple it with the CO2 that we have, and then we can have a really, really stripped down simple way of making protein. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that, <laughs> that we have the simplest way of generating protein and we can dispense of all the unnecessary things like, well, I said roots and photosynthesis, but I mean, if you take that train of logic one step further, a lot of people would argue that you don't even need animal products, you know? There's growing movements in veganism, sort of more people that are being flexitarian as well, which is something that I think we have to pay close attention to because of course a lot of what we're saying is we can make it more sustainable to produce animal-based products but if we really want to have an impact on the environment i think it's pretty clear that we should all decrease the amount of animal products that we consume so it's a delicate line that we have to tread there as well as a company because on the one hand we're saying that we want to improve sustainability but on the other hand it could look like we're propping up something that is inherently bad for the environment but like I said, I think there are examples of animal-based products where ethically it's not as bad as some people make out. And also in terms of sustainability, like I was saying with aquaculture, there are some processes there that are really not so bad for the environment as something like, you know, if you look at the, the methane impact of, of the state of cattle. Yeah, definitely. So I, th I think there's definitely room for nuance. Mm. Yeah, it's like it's an ethical dilemma, but logically speaking, if, if you're making what's going on much cleaner for now and not making more of the bad thing happen, but just making it like a cleaner process, that's not a problem, yeah. I would assume. And then yeah, no, exactly. 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 space to like come up with other innovations to radically improve other things, and that's even better, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of demand for cleaner alternative protein, and mm. if you can feed a growing industry in a more sustainable way, I think that's definitely a good thing. So that's great. And the fact that the demand is so high that we can we can do it at such scale means that we can really make a lot of headway really quickly and then use that platform to then look into products. Yeah. I was going to ask, so for you, um, so I did a, some research into like algae biofuel and using algae and you're talking about how um, the percentage of useful products from it is so high with what you're doing because then you can use algae to like literally make, just produce oil. So there used to be like, it'd have oil within them and you had to like process it. But if it just releases oil, you basically have like biofuel kind of coming in at like a really 
high percentage of the product you want. But could you do something like that instead of producing protein, you could be producing oil from your bacteria? Yeah, I mean, I should be careful how much I disclose here in the yeah. public domain. You know, yeah, if, if you think about it, you need to patent, then don't worry. <laughs> I mean, if you think about the profile of what you're dealing with, with with any cell, obviously there are lipids in there and it's not too tricky to sort of change the lipid profile into something relatively valuable. So it's definitely something we're looking at. I mean, I use the word chassis a lot when I'm talking about the organisms that we use. And I think, you know, this is definitely something that's come out of the synthetic biology space. This idea that an organism is something that you can tinker with and tweak and through metabolic engineering, you can get it to produce different substances. I should also point out that our core technology is non-GMO. So we're harnessing a natural process that these bacteria are capable of doing. So anything that we're going to be producing at large scale in the next five years is going to be non-GMO. But like I say, we have the capabilities in-house to modify that. And I think for protein, it's not necessary in some ways, but for the other things in our pipeline, yeah. I think genetic engineering is really useful, but I think we've seen a big change in the way that that technology is perceived. And we were talking a bit about CRISPR before, and I think it's done a lot to improve public perception of genetic engineering, genome editing. You know, it's even got its own new name now. Sort of, if you think about, if you told someone that you're interested in genetic engineering, maybe if it's a lay person, this may be unfair, but you know, you might evoke images of the genetically modified tomatoes in the UK in the 90s. Um, I think you and I are too young to remember that, but they definitely cost yeah. a lot. Slightly remember it, and I've, we covered it so much in my uh, biology uni stuff. Yeah, yeah, so I don't, it's the same here, so I don't, I don't have any experience of it, but you know, there was a big backlash yeah. from the public about that. But then, if you talk about genome editing, suddenly it's in vogue and it's cool, which is, is a good thing. And I think people are realizing that we should be using advancement of our ability to modify organisms for good. And I think as long as the intention is in the right place, people are happy for you to start exploring that space. Yeah. You know, when you're saying you're not doing it in order for some big corporation to have a slight improvement on their margins, but you're doing it in a way that can yeah. fundamentally change the way that we produce something. I think that is something that's a bit of a no-brainer. And it's something that we actually explored quite a lot as well during our ideation phase. You know, We were thinking that we had this really good technology, but what would the best applications of it be? And one of our first thoughts was food. We could do a food-based product. And we did a consumer survey because we thought one of the easiest ways to make it a better product would be genetic engineering, but would people be up for that? So we put out a Google survey amongst our friends and family and got them to share it with their friends. And overwhelmingly, the answer was, yeah, it was fine. If we were to do genetic engineering, now I need to think about how I phrase these questions, actually. It was something along the lines of, if we were to use genetic engineering in a safe manner, that was sort of certifiably not going to cause you any health problems, would you be okay with that? And I think 92% of the people that we asked, we asked over 300 people, they, they, they said yes. So sample size is still quite small, but I think it's indicative that people's perception of genetic engineering is changing. So it's quite exciting, I think, to be working in a really, really fast moving field. So I'm, I'm actually going to the Alternative Protein Show in a couple of weeks time in San Francisco. I'm talking there with a bunch of other companies uh, operating in this space. So it'd be really interesting to see what other people are doing. There's a lot of clean meat companies there, you know, the, the likes they're doing cell, cell culture to generate meat, but not from animals, a lot of yeah. plant-based protein. So it would be really, really unsurprising for me not to bump into a lot of companies that are using synthetic biology for, for good. So I'm excited to see what other people are doing there. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun I've never heard of. The alternative protein show, but 
that's like my kind of place to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll send you a link. It's uh, it's, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Mm, yeah, that's like lots of fun. Cool. Yeah, I did want to ask about what were the team skills that you had? Because you said that you've got like 15 years experience in like flue gas conversion stuff, but you've got like a physicist, a chemist, a biologist, a programmer. I don't know. How did you, yeah, what's the collective requirements for you guys to be able to start this business? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we started with a team three. So myself, Rob Mansfield and Bart Panda, like I said, we all met at the Synthetic Biology Research Center at the University of Nottingham when we were working in this field of gas fermentation. I've always had an interest in the commercial application of biotechnology. You know, this is my first business, but I've worked for startups before in both technical and commercial roles. So naturally that sort of led me into becoming the sort of the commercial lead for the company. So in terms of division of labor, what I would generally do is work with different stakeholders. So the people that we're getting our CO2 from and offering a carbon reduction service to, but also sort of animal feed companies that are looking for an alternative protein source and making sure that what we do is aligned with what they want. And then Bart is a real expert in this actual fermentation process. So he's very good at knowing which parameters work best optimizing them and feeding that information back into how we do so at scale. And then Rob is is the operational manager. So basically he has he straddles both the technical side of the work that, that, that Bart does and the commercial side that I do and somehow manages to pull it all together in a very effective way. So he actually has done a really good job of helping shape our deal with the cement manufacturer that I described earlier. So working through all the necessary safety things that we need to go on site and all the sort of logistical issues surrounding that as well. So as a relatively small team to start with, that's our division of labor. But there are a few sort of glaring holes in our technical competencies there that you can probably see which we're going to fix shortly. We're looking to expand the team, get a chemical engineer on board. But we've also got a really nice network, which is extremely useful. So we partner a lot with different entities, both academic and commercial in Europe, and we're able to use that to outsource some of the work that we do. And I think going forward, we're going to carry on doing that because it's definitely been extremely beneficial to do so to start with. Cool. I'm sort of regretting not doing a PhD these days because I can talk to people that have been able to like research really fun stuff and then build it into some commercial. It's like you said about you're struggling to see the point of like getting the adoption of the research you're doing. Like I kind of I felt that quite strongly when I was thinking about doing more research. But yeah, in hindsight, <laughs> maybe I made the wrong yeah. choices. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that academia definitely needs to address. Um, mm. a, a PhD now more than ever doesn't really translate into a career in academia. I think a lot of the PhD students and postdocs that I speak to haven't found their training reflects that. But the positive side of it is it has provided me and the rest of the team with a lot of skills that we wouldn't have got working anywhere else. So there's massive upsides to it. And I think a lot of that is down to taking some ownership about what you do. You know, I've worked with people in the past that moan about the fact that they're bored of their job, it has no real world application, and they're stagnating, but they've spent six years beyond their PhD still working in the same lab. So, I mean, there's a point there where you just got to take some ownership yourself and say, okay, well, if this isn't what I want, 
maybe I can pivot. Maybe I have a good skill set that's applicable somewhere else. And it just needs a bit of determination, a bit of thought and a bit of sort of willingness to grow yourself um, in order to really do that. Yeah, growth mindset. (laughs) Exactly. Nice. So uh, would you be able to give an example of where you really use a growth mindset? Do you think that's sort of what made you go and try working for startups? Yeah, precisely. I mean, I've always had a willingness to learn new things, but when you spend too long in any place, I think you will start to stagnate and that's never a good thing. So it's always good to stretch yourself. And I thought there's no better place to stretch myself than a startup. It's pretty obvious that if you move into a team that's very small, the impacts of your work can be big. You know, it's not a big organization like academia in a big academic lab or a big corporation where you can hide. Um, Any mistakes you make are going to be exposed but the positive benefits of the work that you do are also going to be out on display. So I think, like I was saying before, that element of ownership about what you do is really, really nice in a startup. You have your own responsibility, which I think is a key driving factor for me, but you also have a lot of space in which to expand into. You know, you can say, I want to upskill myself in terms of my innovation management. So that's something that I found extremely beneficial when I was working at a startup. I did a lot of training in the field of innovation management and well, thinking about thinking, right? So in what ways can we ensure that the work that we do is optimal in terms of driving the company forward? And often you find when you're driving the company forward, then personally, you're massively benefiting as well. Yeah, you can learn so much doing, yeah, doing that out of your comfort zone. Hard stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's backtracking bits. So... You're saying that you you like a lot of costs to like start commercializing the technology. How have you gone about raising funding? Was it just once you're able to prove the process, it's such a it's just such a like sensible thing to be doing and like has direct commercial applicabilities that it was easy or was it super hard? Yeah, I think in some ways, yeah, what you said at first is correct. The fact that this isn't a latent problem, this is a real active problem that both the you know the carbon reduction side of our business and the protein side of our business both address. It's something that investors are very aware of. The business case is strong, so the interest is there. So I think in many ways, that initial first interaction with investors has never been an issue. Where we did, I think where what helps us a lot is that we were part of an accelerator program. So like I said, from our team, I was the only one that really had a lot of experience in a commercial role, but even that was relatively limited. So being part of a cohort of other companies learning and trying to drive forward, having weekly updates was really, really useful. So we did that with BioCity in Nottingham. They're a sort of incubator and accelerator company that have got a few sites across the UK and they're specifically biotech or medtech orientated. And they basically took us through case studies of startups that have done well, those have done badly. And they used a lot of sort of lean startup methodologies. So business model generation, value proposition design, you know, sort of all these things that modern startups lean on in order to get going. No pun intended there. Yeah. And and helped us drive forward and really shape what our business plan was. If you were to think about what our value proposition would have been at the start, it would have been very technology centric. We would have been talking a lot about how we have this great process called gas fermentation. It's really good and it's going to change the world. Whereas I think when I described what we do at the top of the program to you, I probably didn't even mention the microbes that we use or even the word gas fermentation. It was just 
CO2 to protein. So I think being able to shape our value proposition was really useful in interacting with investors. And a lot of big VC firms that we've been interacting with have only been, we've only done so after we managed to nail our value proposition. So with that in place, it became relatively easy. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Just uh, like how lucky I am to be able to talk to cool people like you. And <laughs> completely didn't think of another question to ask. I'm just like, oh, this is great. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Super cool. I didn't. I haven't heard about BioCity before, but I've been. There's some other biotech accelerators in Bristol that I've been speaking to that got some really cool stuff going on. Yeah, no, BioCity are really cool because I mean they don't operate out of London, which is why a lot of people may not know them. Of course, if you want to be a biotech company and you want to have lab space and you want to have the space to grow, central London isn't the best place to do that. So I think it kind of makes sense. I mean they've got a couple of sites in Nottingham, one in Manchester, and one up near Glasgow. And they run these sort of biannual, or it might even be every four months, they run these accelerator programs and they take a cohort of companies through. And it, yeah, like I say, it's extremely beneficial. I mean, I probably don't have to go into a lot of detail about what an accelerator program entails because they're so prevalent these days. But I think it's a good thing that they are. Mm, yeah, definitely. It's quite interesting business proposition actually running an accelerator and they're kind of optimized to try and have like 100 people go through them and hope that one will crack a massive unicorn. So yeah, yeah. fingers crossed that'll be you guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's got the potential for it for sure. And yeah, you seem to know what you're doing. So this is a good start. Yeah. Would you be able to go into risk? Like what would you say is the biggest risk you've ever taken? The biggest risk I've ever taken. Yeah. So again, it's going to come back to talking about Deep Branch as a company, but yeah, starting the company was a big risk. So I left academia and, and took up a job in the Netherlands with a startup called Innovo, which I guess was a risk in itself, but Innovo are doing really well. They have a, a gender screening device for chicken eggs, which may sound slightly weird, but it actually answers a really big problem. So each year we kill about 7 billion chicks worldwide and this is simply because they're male so if you think about chickens you have you have two breeds mainly you have those that are for meat production called broilers and those for egg production called layers and they've been bred to the extent where and the other one is like a mastiff so the very skinny one is very good at putting all this energy into producing eggs so this is the, the layer whereas the broiler is very good at putting weight on and it's almost like a bodybuilder and it does so very quickly this is the broiler so you can imagine that the male versions of the layers they just have no economic value because they don't ever put meat on them no matter how much feed you give them so they get killed as soon as they hatch so what Innovo do is they determine the gender of the egg really early on in embryogenesis and they're able to remove the egg in the incubation process prior to the nervous system being developed. So it's a much more humane solution to this really big problem. So I really liked the mission of the company and they were looking for someone with my sort of skill set. I chatted to the guys there and I said, sounds good. I came over and I worked for them for just over a year and I was offered the role of senior scientist there, but I decided to start Deep Branch Biotechnology instead. So I turned down a well-paid job for a startup that was growing. Um, They just closed their Series A because I wanted to do my own thing and I wanted to, I felt that my role at Deep Branch would be a lot more impactful and a lot more beneficial to me in my career. Um, I've always seen myself as being less technical although i'm relatively technically gifted i have a good skill set in, in terms of research but sort of the commercial side is something that i've been a lot more interested in and wanting to grow a big company and the other thing to note there is also scale so i think the branch has a lot of potential to grow into being something that has huge impacts and that we can make it into a very big company and that's 
something I want to do. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it definitely sounds like an ideal job to walk away from is kind of a pretty scary thing. Yeah. But yeah, it's quite funny because I am... Um, I literally read about them last week and they're just like starting to have um they've had the first eggs being sold in germany like i read a whole bunch of like the how science behind how they're doing it and like wow this is so cool yeah um, yeah so it is really cool but i think like i was saying before about it not being too tricky for us to start talking to investors and the reason for that being that it wasn't a latent problem until recently the gender screening problem with well the sort of the killing of male chicks has been a bit of a latent problem. People don't really know about it in Germany. It has a lot more exposure, which is why you see that they're on the supermarket shelves in Germany. But, you know, when I first started speaking to the company, I, with regards to like job interviews, I was a bit like, so what is it that you do? And why is that a thing? So it's, I can appreciate that if you're trying to find a solution to a problem that people don't know about, it's a lot harder to get people engaged initially. Mm. Yeah, that's really cool. But I think that, that's also a reflection of the poultry industry being a bit of a black box for a lot of people for a long time. Mm. Yeah, there's loads of hidden stuff in industry and things. Yeah. It's quite interesting. I was in Asia and like they eat so much chicken feet, and it turns out they import loads of chicken feet from America, and like they send them back like chicken wings because America yeah. like chicken wings, and Asia they like chicken feet. And you're like, wow, I had no idea people ate those things. And I mean, yeah. they taste the exact same anyway. It's kind of pointless. You're like, oh, we could just <laughs> have chicken feet with our chicken wings at the same time. But yeah, it's the psychology. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not such a, like a bad thing to be hiding. It's just you just don't know about it. It's just industry it happens yeah i mean chicken in general is a bit of a crazy industry i mean it's it's been growing like crazy for the last sort of 50 years or so Mm -hmm. i mean there was a point not too long ago you know sort of 60 70 years ago where chickens were kind of just something that you had in your barnyard you had a few of them knocking around and they weren't really produced at that great a scale and now you see that you know sort of especially in asia chicken production is just skyrocketing Mm, yeah we do eat a lot of chicken yeah (laughs) at least it's more sustainable than like red meat but it's yeah yeah so a bit ridiculous the scale that we consume it on yeah certainly i mean here here in the netherlands there's a there's a really interesting case for valorization you know sort of so circular economy use of biotechnology for good and for waste valorization is, is basically something that i'm really interested in and along those lines and kind of along the lines of energy generation as well in the netherlands i think about a third of the poultry manure used is actually used for generation of electricity cool. so the water content of poultry manure is is actually really low so you can just burn it so a lot of the dutch electricity actually comes from chicken shit oh that's nice <laughs> cool yeah i think um it is quite interesting and you're speaking about people being like flexitarian turning to vegetarian i've kind of done that myself but then i find quite a big issue with the fact that technically it's more sustainable to eat chicken than it is cheese but then when you're a vegetarian you just get given cheese the whole time and you're like well maybe i could just eat chicken but then people are just like what you're not being vegetarian and you're like oh <laughs> and this is how yeah. people like you're just trying to be ethically eating the best thing possible and and they just get annoyed with you and <laughs> yeah i mean discounting the the ethical side of things cheese is so delicious that yeah true I mean, certainly with regards to my meat intake, yeah, I, I think I probably eat meat once or twice a week now. And that's a conscious decision to do so that my wife and I have been doing for a, a year or two now. Yeah, nice. And, you know, I think it stretches your cooking as well, you know, and I'm really into cooking and having meat as the replaced as the focal point of the dish can be challenging to start with, but it's, it's nice. But I guess synthetic cheese is the next big one to go for. There's a company called clara foods who are making synthetic egg whites cool so that's they're another one of these companies that uh, i'm looking forward to speaking to the alternative protein show and the reason why i think they're really interesting is because 
it just comes back to this technical challenge that I was speaking about with regards to producing anything at any meaningful scale. So in order to make synthetic egg whites, it's not too tricky because it's only of albumin. It's one protein. So in theory, if you were able to produce that at a relatively good scale, you can just generate fake egg whites really quickly, really easily, which is exactly what they're doing. And there's obviously a market for it. You know, you can go into the supermarket and you can get a carton of egg whites. If you think about the use of egg whites in a lot of cooking, it's there. So if you were to give people the option of buying it. And again, coming back to this really stripped down, taking away all the unnecessary processes of nature. You don't have to feed chickens corn and make them lay an egg and then extract egg white in order to, I don't know, bake a cake or whatever. You can literally just give uh, some some small amount of nutrients and water to grow your chassis and it can produce egg whites for you. So, you know, it has a lot of potential to, to do a lot of good. Yeah, yeah, pretty huge. I watched some stuff on Future Food that was showing producing egg whites from plant proteins. Okay. But it sounds like you're talking about, yeah, more like microbial chassis, being able to just produce direct albumin rather than a protein that's just quite similar to albumin but a different kind of yeah. originality hmm. yeah that's really cool i would uh yeah i'd love to talk to them at some point as well yeah i mean bi- biotechnology um doing good things for food is really coming to the fore at the moment but yeah it's something really that new i mean if you think about early 90s you already had the likes of Junencor who were making synthetic calf chymosin so Chymosin is necessary for you to make uh, cheese, right? So traditionally, you'd extract it from, yeah, I think, from the stomach or from the pancreas or, you know, some sort of secretion from calves. So this is why conventionally or traditionally made cheese wouldn't be vegetarian. But Genco found a way to produce this from a microbial chassis as early as the 90s. Cool. I mean, it's just an enzyme, right? But mm. using that enzyme instead of using something of animal origin has meant that cheese has truly now become vegetarian. If you discount the killing of male cows, male calves, or <laughs> yeah. So again, yeah. yeah, if you can any problem, then yeah, just don't eat anything. I think that's the solution. Mm. Yeah, come like the there's a name for it. People that think they can uh, live off the sun. Yeah. Well, who knows where some technology will take us in the future? Yeah, I mean, it'd be so cool if you could like just inject sort of. Well, some kind of crisper thing and turn your skin into a photosynthesizing layer and <laughs> never have to eat again. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be wicked. Yeah, do you guys ever think about, okay, five years' time, what are going to be the changes in the industry? What are like, the coolest things that we could possibly come up with? Like, what else are going to be changing technologically in terms of costs coming down? Which would done yeah. a lot, like other awesome stuff you could do. No, it's, it's a good question. I think the costs of hydrogen generation coming down, specifically for our process, but also for a lot of other processes that use carbon dioxide as a feedstock you know often these two things have to be coupled so the price of electrolysis coming down means that scaling down of equipment is going to be a really interesting space to move into so at the top of the show i talked about how our technology really only works when it's done at sufficient scale but if those scaling costs are removed then it'd be really interesting to see how you could apply technology like like ours a smaller scale so maybe you can use it to capture some emissions coming from farms or from the top of small factories or even sort of residential dwellings and I think using synthetic biology in a way that can really circularize things in an impactful manner. So if you take a waste stream from any given industry and you're able to provide 
that same industry with one of their inputs is great. So for instance, uh, there's, a, there's a company up in Manchester that I've spoken with quite a lot. It's called Iconic. And what they do is they convert carbon dioxide. Well, they use, they use carbon dioxide in a chemical reaction and the end result of which is a platform chemical that companies like Big Pharma are interested in this. Big chemical producers are interested because the polyols that they produce from that process have direct applications in those industries. And those industries obviously produce a lot of CO2. So if you put one of these units on site with them, they can literally just transform one of their waste streams into something they need elsewhere in their products. And I think that is a really interesting way for our technology to go if the scaling comes down. So in the next five, 10 years, if we can see that we can use small scale versions of our technology and have impactful ways of using that for people's lives, I think that'd be great. I mean, what if we could make pet food from the emissions coming off the, the top of your chimney? It'd be a silly example, but you, you see what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, it'd be awesome. So cool. Okay, nice. Yeah, so guests probably should start wrapping up. We've got some other things to do. And yeah, I could talk to you about these kind of things for quite a lot longer. And so many cool things that you seem to be uh, knowledgeable about. But yeah, just the uh, last few questions I'd like to ask people. What is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? The kindest thing anyone has ever done for me? Hmm. It would have to be, I was 18 years old. I just had a really big knee surgery and I was recovering from my operation in hospital on Christmas Eve. And my father wanted to make sure that I was home for Christmas. But in order to do so, I had to prove that I was capable of urinating on my own. So my dad sat by my bedside and force fed me water for about four hours <laughs> until I got up and had a piss so I could be home for Christmas. Wow. So it was a kind of trippy Christmas day, pumped full of opioids on the sofa. But I think it was really kind of him to ensure that I was able to spend quite a dark time of my life surrounded by family, you know, on Christmas day. So that, that was really nice. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Reminds me of a time when I, I just had surgery and then I got, my daughter's woke me up or something and I need the toilet. My mum went with me and then I started having a piss and about halfway through I basically <laughs> lost consciousness and was like mom I think I'm gonna pass out and she like caught me like <laughs> this uh, mothers are great and fathers yeah. <laughs> surgery suck cool and the other thing I like to ask people is what is your first sort of or one of your most vivid memories from like early childhood one of my vivid memories from early childhood I think it would have to be fishing at my grandparents place in Ireland they live about five minutes walk from the seashore so as a kid every summer I'd go digging for lugworms with my dad when the tide was low and then return to the same spot but up a cliff and fish for for sea bass so I just have a vivid memory of that when I was probably five or six years old sitting having three generations of the family on a cliffside eating sandwiches and fishing yeah cool that's lovely. <laughs> nice. That's really cute. Okay. Then do you have any advice for listeners in terms of if they wanted to get into science or anything that you really think people should know about? Yeah. I think it's important to follow what you think is interesting. And from there, you'll figure out what the right thing to do in terms of career is. I mean, that's certainly the way I've always viewed things myself. And I wasn't really so sure of it initially. I studied biotechnology at university. Most of that decision was based on the fact that biotechnology as a word sounded cool when I was looking through university brochures. Just so happened to be so. I hadn't planned on a career in academia. When I ended my undergraduate degree, I decided to do a PhD on the back of that. I decided to go and work in industry. So yeah, my life hasn't really had any kind of direction that was coming from within. But I feel that 
I just followed what I thought was interesting and what I thought would be a good experience for me to do. So I guess what I'm trying to say is follow your heart, but in a less cheesy way. Mm. Yeah. Speaking with one guest who said that it's not always about focusing on what makes you happy and trying to have like ultimate happiness all day, every day, but to just always follow what makes you interested. Like you said, and really focus on doing interesting work that maybe is hard and a bit unpleasant sometimes, but as long as it's interesting, you'll keep on doing it and then greater happiness maybe gets achieved in the long run yeah Yeah, that's really cool yeah i think there's a big differentiation there between happiness and a sense of achievement often those two things go hand in hand but in order to get a sense of achievement often you have to go through a bit of pain first Mm. so i think a bit of foresight is useful in those things if you can figure out what your at least medium term goals are and you can map out what you have to go through to get there having that in mind is always good yeah i guess like the instant satisfaction versus like ultimate satisfaction the long run kind of thing yeah like delayed gratification cool and then do you have any questions you want to ask me yeah so i mean a podcast is actually something that i've been interested in doing for a while i think i'm quite privileged in my job that i get to have quite a lot of interesting conversations with interesting people on a professional level and i think just throughout the course of this podcast i've been sharing stories of all the cool interesting people that i've met mm. over the last few years and things that they're doing i mean do you have any recommendations for for how i can start getting those conversations out in the public domain yes in you doing the podcast yourself or just in general yeah yeah so i mean what what's your advice to any aspiring podcasters out there i guess is the question i'm trying to ask okay cool i did do a podcast about this which you can listen to where i kind of go through maybe my top tips on starting a podcast and also the people that you mentioned i was like Maybe I'm going to ask for an introduction to all these people because this sounds super interesting. But back to your actual question of what's to do for starting a podcast. You can keep it pretty lean and literally just say, hi, I'm starting a podcast. <laughs> you sound super interesting. Can I talk to you? And turn up with a microphone that isn't completely crap or literally just do Skype interviews like we're doing today and record them. Uh, the harder part, I mean, that part, like, it's just, you just say, hey, I'm a podcaster and suddenly you're a podcaster. The hard part is making the podcast sound not crap, which is like two elements of the sound quality, like as in our sound quality today isn't perfect. So I'm probably going to have to use quite a few plugins to make it sound enough for like listeners to what they expect. And then the editing is quite a hard process to learn in terms of making it sound much more coherent and it's quite easy to just cut out mistakes and things and just bits where i talk about what you should do in the podcast or whatever but then trying to you can really cut out so much content where so maybe i'll ask a question but i'll take like three or four sentences to actually ask something that is really could it be summarized in one line and then again you might go off in a few different paths when you start talking and ultimately what was two minutes of conversation can be boiled down to like 10 seconds of me asking a direct question you're going okay so what we did is this but being able to realize that you can cut out so much content takes quite a bit of learning if you just sort of go through it and you kind of don't want to cut things out initially but suddenly you realize that an hour conversation can be half an hour of actually technically all the same stories and things you haven't actually lost anything but you've just got like a really condensed nice listenable thing to listen to which is it takes a bit of time but i guess just do the first to the 10 episodes and put the time into actually editing it yourself and you get a lot better and know what it is you want to achieve from that and then i guess the other thing for podcast is having a bit of like a brand or direction of what it is you want to be building and selling so if you were just like the biotech ceo podcast or latest innovations podcast 
it's pretty cool. I could buy into something like that. And yeah, I probably would listen because of, yeah, I've been pretty happy with everything you've been talking about today. I was like, yeah, this is so cool. This is totally the kind of thing that I want to spend more time getting involved in and learning about. Yeah. So yeah, I think you should do it if you, if you want to. It does take a bit of time, but you can also get an editor to do it. That's the thing that does take the most time. Yeah. Oh, well, good to know. I'll bear that in mind. And then, well, I mean, you can listen to my podcast about it, but like getting the like a SoundCloud or a host for your podcast is really simple. And like Anchor, you can start a podcast for free. It's not too difficult. Yeah. yeah it gets onto iTunes and everything for you. You have to really do that much. Yeah. I mean, I, I've listened to a few of your podcasts so far. Um, mm. I think and you recommended me listening to the one with uh, Anthony from Seed Legals. Oh, uh, yeah. We're actually, we're signed up with them now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Free- is coming to an end soon but i think we'll probably start paying because it's such a good service definitely yeah Uh, so i I think that you do a really good job of having lots of really interesting guests on from quite a broad range of different topics yeah i guess growth mindset is is nice in a way because many people can use the tenets of uh growth mindset in lots of different ways Mm, it is a bit of a flaw in that it's a bit hard to know exactly what you're getting and, and unless you know like if you've heard of the person like you might listen to a podcast but if, when you face with like 40 different episodes and you're not quite sure what they're about you might not really go and listen to all of them so i've been thinking i might for 2019 break it up into like series of so i might try and get a few more biotech people and have like a biotech series and then perhaps i'll do a proper like psychology mindset series where i'll go to like some of the five biggest people in like different things of success and psychology and have like a proper series on that so you can kind of see what it is you're going to listen to and because it is a bit random <laughs> having me just told you that you should have like a specific kind of brand and what it is you're doing when i haven't yeah. done that very well <laughs> i've deliberately chosen something that allows me to talk to anyone because i'm too curious but it's yeah. a bit of a I problem think, that you uh, i was listening to this the other sam harris podcast recently and he's also mm. rebranding oh yeah? yeah yeah i haven't listened to well that mention yeah. <laughs> i know that he said he's stopped doing using patreon which is yeah. a big thing but yeah his podcast was having a bit of issues and yeah i think quite a lot of the big podcasters like tim ferris and sam harris like they've been getting a bit more boring in that i've heard like the same story from tim ferris like five times now and like i don't really need to hear another one of his interviews with someone that's kind of similar to someone else he's spoken to so yeah trying to innovate and deliver something that is a bit more new to your audience when they've listened to you for two years is quite hard which is yeah. why i was thinking of doing more series or even a bit more curation kind of like planet money and those kind of things where actually they would like interview five ceos but instead of having like each interview separately you'll tie in together and so so i might talk about how do you commercialize technology is like episode one and like how do you like i don't know something else right there but each like a specific kind of story and lesson on that side of it rather than just the whole interviews so like pick it apart to tell specific useful bits of things yeah i think that, that's really useful i think if you can get a lot from a podcast title as, as a listener that's really good because yeah often like i say with the other sam harris but let's call him fake sam harris um, <laughs> that's normally my <laughs> my one with, with this yeah, podcast, uh, sometimes by virtue of who his guest is you can figure out what they're going to be talking about but it's not yeah. time, which i think is the whole point of that long-form conversation is that it could go anywhere but yeah i think having a, a clear title in there that says you know this is how we're going to talk through i mean i think maybe i'm just talking from a personal perspective here but if you had a podcast on how to raise funds like mm. five months ago when i started the company i would just yeah definitely and like i've spoken to like 10 different people about how to raise funds and i could literally put a great podcast together with all the best advice from these different people and should really do that yeah. <laughs> it's a bit frustrating. yeah i think if i had any advice on how to raise funds it would be to 
just get your value proposition nailed. If you have a very good technology or service or product or whatever it is, and you think there's a really good market for it, it's often one thing to have that idea in your head and another thing to really succinctly communicate it well. And this is something that you know a lot of people have put a lot of work into doing. So, you know, you've got the likes of Alex Osterwalder, who's written a couple of books on these topics. I don't know if you've come across him before. Nope. So, yeah, he's really kind of intellectualized the idea of, the business model and uh, so he has business model generation which is one of his books and i think his second one is the value proposition design okay yeah i've read them yeah okay i just completely forgot his name (laughs) yeah and just you know if you can picture that the business model canvas in your head i think maybe you've read the book that jumps out it's just a few simple boxes and if you can fill those in with a couple of sentences then you've done a very good job because Initially, if you give that piece of paper to someone when they're just starting, there'll be text everywhere and it will be full of stuff. And what that basically says is you haven't done a good job of succinctly getting across what it is that you do. So, yeah, I learned a lot from Alex Osterwalder. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because, yeah, I've definitely noticed that when you're first starting startups, your business model canvas just turns into a mess of like, oh, so many ideas and all this and you need to explain. And yeah, it's not that helpful when you try to succinct explain in 60 seconds what it is you do and you're like oh but i've got to talk about this and this and this and this yeah and of course that process isn't distilling what's already there you know it's also shaping what is going to be there if you see what i mean so initially we had a few pretty strong ideas about where we wanted the business to go but we had some minor pivots in there because by filling out our our business model canvas, we realized that there were some pretty glaring holes or some things that were inconsistent. So for instance, when we started, we just figured that there was carbon dioxide everywhere and that any CO2 emitting company would be jumping at the bit to use our technology. But I think there are certain industries that are more carbon intensive that feel that pain a lot more and getting an idea of what the pains and gains of different potential customers for your business are really helps shape what you should do to move your business forward. Cool. Yeah, nice. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, have you run any businesses before? No, this is actually my um, first business. I, I mean, I've worked for a couple of small startups in the past, but uh, yeah, this is my first endeavor into the business world, which is been really interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah Do you think the working in startups helped a lot? Yeah, I do. My last job, I was at part of a, a small team, you know, sort of five people. And I had quite a lot of responsibility there. I was sort of running my own project. So it gave me quite a lot of autonomy and sort of exposure to the things you have to deal with when you're running your own business. So mm. it definitely helped. And also, you know, you get firsthand exposure to all the mistakes uh, and good things that the companies do. And therefore, you know, I've learned a lot from those. I think more so than I would have done working in a big company, especially in biotech, because, yeah, I feel the difference between academia and working for you know sort of a big biotech company wouldn't be sort of that great you'd still be if you're in a technical role you'd just be in a lab whereas working for a startup you've got to wear multiple hats and learn how to do lots of different jobs cool do you think it maybe put you off working in a big company and like you wanted to start your own thing instead or Um, just happened to be because you found cool stuff no i've always liked building things and i've always wanted to do my own thing i like the fact that a lot of my interests and expertise are in areas that can have a lot of impacts on the world and i wanted to be able to do that and like i said before you know i used to work in academia and i felt that by doing so it was pretty obvious that the correlation between the amount of effort I put in doing that work and the amount of impact I had on the world wasn't going to be that great. So I decided just to take the ball by the horns and apply what I did into the real world. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like what you guys are doing is really cool and kind of impactful and 
quite jealous in that I used to uh, be studying biology and wanted to be doing something in that area quite a lot. So I've been getting really interested into biotech again. I'm a bit older and wiser about things. So uh, yeah, we'll see what happens in the next few years. Yeah, but, I mean, it's an interesting field. There's lots of people mm-hmm. doing really cool things. I think sort of the age of synthetic biology dawning on us has has meant that the potential for advancement is certainly there and you know you can see already there are companies that are realizing that potential it's no longer just a pipe dream i mean i kind of got a bit what would the right way to say this be so throughout the course of my phd i was working a lot on crispr based genome editing and i think over recent years i've suffered a bit from crispr saturation just constantly being bombarded with news articles heralding yeah. it as big thing and it is obviously an immensely powerful tool but i do feel in some ways it's being overblown but i think in the next sort of decade or so we're really going to start seeing the fruits of that come through okay anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to talk about i think that's it for now but if i think of anything else i'll keep it jotted down and maybe we can have a yeah. chat in six months yeah, time. yeah. yeah that'd be you great know? yeah well, yeah it's been massive pleasure to talk to you and so for me it's been pretty cool and inspirational and hopefully will be useful to uh listeners best of luck with everything this year and hopefully you'll be a unicorn in the next few years and saving lots of uh, carbon and combining into useful products yeah well thanks very much and uh, i really appreciate you having me on it's been uh, been a really interesting chat it's always good to talk to people about interesting things and i'm sure i'll be in touch in the near future cool nice one All right well enjoy uh rest of your day and year and great uh, yeah you too <laughs> If you enjoy the podcast, I'd love to have your support on Patreon. I'm always open to feedback and just love having a chat with people. So I will definitely respond to all your emails and conversation on the Patreon channel. And you'll also get exclusive access to certain parts of interviews and free copies of whatever other content I start producing, such as books and courses, etc. Because why not? You've just listened to an episode of the Growth Mindset Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred app and give me a good rating as these go a really long way. If you are unable to give good feedback right now, try sharing the show with a friend who will, or just wait for the show to improve. If you have any ideas for the show or you just want to chat, then please reach out to me on Twitter at Sam Harris Tweets or Instagram at Sam Jam Snaps. Show notes and other links to topics discussed in the episodes are available at the website, growthmindsetpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Give yourself a big hug from me. If you're with a friend, give them a hug as well. And I hope you enjoy your next podcast.